Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and it is verses 22 through 35. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, it is found on page 857. Our reading this morning is God's holy and inerrant word, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 22 through 35. Luke 2.22, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, as the word has now just been read, we are asking for your help. We are asking for your spirit to come in power, to come with clarity, to come with understanding, that the word may be made manifest to us in a way that we can understand and to receive through eyes of faith that we might be able to cherish you and worship you rightly this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as Christmas approaches in just a few days, we want to consider this morning a Christmas text that probably doesn't get very much attention. I know I've never preached this passage I don't think it's ever been preached before in our church. I'm not sure, but I don't believe so. There are actually probably thousands of pulpits this morning preaching Luke chapter 2, but verses 1 to 21, because that's the classic birth narrative. But we don't hear too many sermons 
on verses 22 to 35, on the events that took place a month after Jesus was born. Well, this morning, I think you're going to find these verses quite interesting and quite provocative. The question we're posing this morning is this. Why did Jesus come into this world? What did he come for? What was his purpose? What was his mission? Now, if you think about it, to even ask this question, to be even able to ask this question of Jesus is quite amazing. It should give us pause to consider how it even makes sense to ask this of Jesus. Because if I were to ask you, why did you come into this world? You wouldn't have an answer. You, you didn't decide to be born. You had no choice or say in the matter. It just happened to you. You came into this world without any clue as to why you're here, and you've spent decades trying to figure that out. And some of you are still trying to answer that question to figure out what you're doing here. But not Jesus. Jesus is different. Now, he's the same as us in that he entered this world as a man, but unlike us, he made a conscious decision to come. Unlike us, he had a purpose for coming. He knew exactly why he came on that first Christmas morning. And a passage like ours this morning touches on that very question. Why did Jesus come into the world? Well, from our text, we can answer that question in four different ways that fit under two broad categories, the categories of consolation and confrontation. And if you want to follow along with me, just look into your bulletin. You'll see an outline with these four answers to our question. Why did Jesus come into the world first? He came to console by saving all people. Second, he came to console by fulfilling all the law. Third, he came to confront by creating conflict between us. And fourth, he came to confront by, com by creating conflict within us. So let's get into this. The first thing we see in our text is that Jesus came to bring consolation by saving all peoples. This is what we learn from Simeon. Simeon is introduced to us in verse 25 as a righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that mean? What was he waiting for? Friends, he was waiting for the Messiah, for the consoler of Israel. Keep in mind that Israel at this time was still under foreign occupation, which had lasted for centuries. Over 500 years earlier, the Babylonians had conquered Judah. They had destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They had burned down the temple of God. And you have to understand how serious that was, because for Israel, the temple was the very manifestation of God's earthly presence and pleasure among his people. But we read in Ezekiel chapter 10 that prior to the temple's destruction, the prophet sees the glory of the Lord visibly departing from the temple because of Israel's spiritual adultery, their idolatry, chasing after other gods. And ever since then, 
Even after the return from Babylonian exile, even after the construction of the second temple, there's no converse vision of the glory returning. Nowhere do you read of someone seeing the glory of the Lord returning to Jerusalem in the same way and residing in the temple once again. And that's why righteous, devout men like Simeon were still waiting waiting for the glory to return, waiting for the promised Messiah, waiting for the anointed one who would restore Israel to her former glory by bringing back the glory of the Lord. So up to this point in redemptive history, their hopes have been deferred. They're still waiting. They're still asking, is the Lord coming back? Will God live among us? Will his glory return and dwell with us again? Up to this point, the jury is still out. But for Simeon, Simeon remains hopeful because he was given a unique promise. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, as you might be aware, Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It's the same as Messiah. It's just in Greek instead of Hebrew. Messiah, Christ, they both mean the anointed. So Simeon won't die until he sees the Lord's anointed with his own eyes. So just picture with me. Picture this faithful man. It doesn't say that he's old, uh, even though it seems to be implied and in all of the, the storybooks, he's always this old man, but he's this faithful man. And just picture with me him making his daily trek to the Temple Mount. Picture with me him climbing those steps nine stories high to the plateau of Mount Zion where the temple grounds are. Imagine him just walking around the outer courts, looking intently at every single passerby, wondering, is this the day? Is this the day that I'm finally going to see the Lord's Christ? And I, I really wonder who he was expecting to see. As his eyes darted around the crowd, were his eyes drawn, particularly towards some people? When he saw a, a strapping young man, with broad shoulders and a head taller than the rest, did he think to himself, is that him? When he walked by, one of the revered religious teachers who had a throng of disciples following behind, hanging on every word, did he wonder, is that him? You know, I'm not surprised if those are the kinds of people that he was looking for in the crowd. So just imagine Simeon's surprise when he passes by this couple holding a little baby boy. And suddenly, by, by some prompting of the Spirit, the Spirit says, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is the consoler of Israel, the one who is going to bring back the glory of the Lord. And so we read in verse 28, that Simeon scoops up this one-month-old child into his arms, and he blesses God by saying, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now notice right there, he doesn't say that his eyes saw the Lord's Christ. Notice it says he saw the Lord's salvation. I think that's significant. Simeon recognizes that Jesus is not just any savior like any other hero in Israel's vaunted history. Jesus was unique in that he was the very embodiment of the Lord's salvation. Unlike in other religions, in Christianity, salvation is not centered on adopting certain principles and practices. Now, yes, of course, Principles and practices are there, but they're not at the center of Christian salvation. At the center of our salvation are not pillars of faith or um, noble truths that we have to adopt and embrace. At the center of Christian salvation is a person to love and to trust. Jesus is God's salvation. In the flesh. His name is fitting because the name of Jesus means the Lord saves. Now think about this. Think about what this means. Because because of the fact that Christian salvation is not centered on a culturally bound set of practices, but rather on a person who is the Lord of all the earth, that means with the arrival of Christ, salvation has been universally expanded and made available to all peoples of all cultures. That's what's meant by saving all peoples. We're not talking Listen carefully, we're not talking about a universal salvation where the Messiah saves all persons on the earth without exception, but we are talking, we are talking about a universal mission to save all peoples or all people groups on earth without distinction. We're talking about salvation for all nations. And this is what Simeon recognizes, and this is what he says. Look in verse 31. For my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, all people groups, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This right here is the first mention in Luke's gospel of the universal mission of God to reach all peoples on the earth with the light of Christ. And it's definitely not going to be the last. This theme of Jesus bringing a light, being the light to the Gentiles culminates in Luke's second book, the book of Acts. But even here, Even in the beginning of his first book, you begin to see that universal light shining in this little baby. And I think that's what really just stands out for me in this story. It's how Simeon realizes that he's staring at the Lord's salvation while he's looking at a little baby in his arms. Apparently, he felt no need to see Jesus grow up first and prove that he's the real Messiah. Apparently, Simeon didn't need that kind of proof. He could see Jesus as the Messiah through eyes of faith. He trusted in what God said. When God said, this is the Christ, he may not look like what you expected, 
but he is the one that you've been waiting for. This is him. And now, having seen the Messiah through eyes of faith, Simeon says, I am ready to go. I am ready to die. That's what he says in verse 29. He's ready to depart in peace. That, that language is the biblical language of a watchman, a watchman who can now be dismissed from his post once the anticipated event that he's been waiting for has arrived. Simeon was faithful and vigilant in his watch, and now he can rest in peace. Now he is ready to die. And friends, Simeon's not alone. Anyone who sees Jesus as the Messiah through eyes of faith is ready to die. You too can face death knowing that you will depart in peace. I, I know some of you, as you look back to this year, you look back to 2019, some of you have experienced death, the death of a loved one. And through that, you were confronted with your own mortality. When you saw your loved one lying in that casket, you were starkly reminded that that will be you one day. Unless the second advent comes first, death is going to be the reality for all of us. But if you can look to Jesus, and despite your preconceived notions, despite your expectations, if you can see him as the Messiah, as the Lord's salvation through eyes of faith, then you are ready to die no matter when that day is appointed for you. That's the consolation that we receive in the gospel of Jesus the Christ. So the first answer to our question of why Jesus came into the world is to bring consolation by saving all peoples. Well, here's the second answer. Jesus came into the world to console by fulfilling all the law. This point explains exactly how Jesus goes about to accomplish our salvation. He will faithfully and righteously fulfill the law of the Lord, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves in our own strength. Take a look with me at verses 22 to 27. And notice here in these verses, there's a repeated emphasis on the parents of Jesus doing whatever is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 22, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, again, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Go to verse 27. And he came in the spirit, Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Do you see a pattern here? Do you see what Luke is trying to communicate. When you see this kind of a pattern, you got to realize this is no coincidence. Luke, the author, is trying to tell us something. He is presenting Jesus and his parents as faithful keepers of the law of God. Just follow the pattern with me. The law of Moses requires that Hebrew boys are to be circumcised after eight days when they are born. So when they're eight days old. And we see them doing 
exactly that in verse 21. The parents circumcised, get Jesus circumcised. And then the law also says that a new mother is considered ceremonially unclean after giving birth due to all the blood that is involved. And she has to wait 33 days, about a month, and then she can offer two sacrifices for her purification, a lamb for a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. But the law also accommodates because if she's too poor to purchase a lamb, she can offer two turtle doves or two pigeons to cover both of those sacrifices, and then she'll be ceremonially clean. And if you're interested to learn more about where is this all found, you can read that in Leviticus chapter 12. It explains all of those instructions after childbirth. So notice with me how Mary and Joseph, how they offer a pair of turtle doves or pigeons, indicating that Jesus wasn't born into wealth. He wasn't even born into a family who could afford a lamb. He was born into poverty, into a family of humble, meager means. But it was a family that was devoted to the law. Every ancient Hebrew couple knew that the law says that your firstborn son belongs to the Lord. And that's what it means in verse 23 when it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. You set him apart to the Lord. He belongs to God. So every family is to take their firstborn son and they are to present him to the Lord, signifying their understanding that their son is ultimately a gift from God and belongs to God. But according to Numbers chapter 18, verse 15, you can redeem back your son with the payment of five shekels of silver. The payment's not mentioned in our text, but it's likely implied that the couple offered it. So the whole reason the family was there on that day, on the temple grounds, was to get ceremonially clean and to present Jesus to the Lord and to redeem him back, all according to the law of the Lord. And if you keep reading on into Luke's gospel, into chapter 3, verse 21, you're going to see Jesus submitting himself to a baptism of repentance where clearly he had no need for it. He never sinned. He didn't need to repent. In Matthew's gospel, he records John the Baptist as being very hesitant to baptize Jesus. John is like, I, what, 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 you want me to baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. And notice Jesus' reply in Matthew 3. It's profound. He says to John, let it be so now. Baptize me. Let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This emphasis on how Jesus and his parents are meticulously keeping the law of God to fulfill all righteousness. Friends, this is no small detail in the Gospels. It is making clear that Jesus came to faithfully keep what we consistently defy. He is here to fulfill what we continually fail. We all stand guilty before the law. 
a righteous law that we are so prone to break. And that's what it really means to be a sinner, to be a transgressor of the law. And our guilt calls for our condemnation, for punishment that consists of eternal torment in a place of hopeless agony. Considering the plight of man, considering our condition in the flesh, this means that we need a Savior who does more than just rescue us from the grips of an enemy. We need a Savior who can redeem us from the guilt of sin. So just imagine a Savior who who comes in might and power to break you free from debtor's prison, only to discover that the one who holds a claim on your life is no mere creditor, but the high king of the land himself. That means there's nowhere you can escape to within the kingdom. There's nowhere you can go that's beyond the king's reach or jurisdiction. And, and now imagine the one who holds a claim on your life is none other than the king of kings. And the Lord of lords, the king of the whole world. That means there's nowhere in this world that you can escape. Having someone break you free from prison after prison after prison is no real solution. What you need is someone who can finally pay off your debt and free you from the guilt of your sins against the laws of the king. And friends, That's exactly the kind of Savior that Jesus is. That's the kind of consolation he has come to bring. He has come to fulfill the law of God on your behalf, to perfectly keep it. And now by faith in him, by you trusting in him, hiding yourself in him, God will graciously count the perfect obedience of his son as yours. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to have our guilt erased, to be right in God's eyes. God will count what Jesus has done as yours. And it's all because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. The law demands a righteous life, and he lives that life for us. The law demands death as an atonement for sin, and he dies that death for us. The consolation that we find in the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to be a fitting substitute, to come and to take our place. That, my friends, is really at the heart of Christmas. Jesus became like us. He identified with our creatureliness. He identified with our frailty. He is coming to be our substitute. That's why I think it's so significant that his parents, as it says here, could only afford two turtle doves. They were poor. You realize Jesus could have been born into any other family in the line of David, but God chose a poor couple because the Messiah was going to be poor. He had to be poor if he was going to identify with the poor, the materially poor and the spiritually poor. And then, once once he identifies with us in our poverty, he can live the life that we should have lived and eventually die the death that we deserve to die. That's the gospel. That's our consolation. So friends, we've seen two ways 
in which Jesus came to bring consolation. Now let's see two ways in which he led to confrontation. Here's our third point. Jesus came to confront by creating conflict between us. Now, this might surprise you because we're so used to hearing around this Christmas season that Jesus came to bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men. So it sounds jarring to speak of Christmas having anything to do with confronting people and dividing people. It's kind of like when I, when I listen to Handel's Messiah. You know, it's always around this time of year. I've got Messiah kind of playing in the background while I'm studying or, or writing a sermon. You know, it's so much part of the background that I, I'm just no longer paying attention to the words anymore. But take the Hallelujah Chorus, for example. You know, I mean, so it's the one song you probably all recognize. You know, Hallelujah. That, that song, we're so accustomed to hearing it, played, you know, in the, in the, in the mall, you know, in, in the waiting room, that we don't even realize sometimes what it's actually saying. The words of the Hallelujah Chorus are from Revelation chapter 19. It's where the Apostle John hears the heavens roar with hallelujah, and he sees Jesus coming down, riding on a white horse, brandishing a sword, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what is being sung. The Hallelujah Chorus is about Jesus coming down to pick a fight. He's bringing some confrontation. Does that even compute for you? Like, does that even fit your picture of Jesus? But that really is the picture that Simeon is trying to paint for Mary. If you look in verse 34, look there with me. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So he's saying this cute little one-month-old, this little baby is appointed to create a divide between people. Some are going to be lifted up while others are going to be cast down. Now, really, that shouldn't have surprised Mary considering how the prophets They frequently spoke of God's Messiah as being a precious cornerstone for some people, but a stone of stumbling for others. So that's why we read in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, of God saying that he's going to lay down a stone in Zion, a stone in Jerusalem, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever trusts in it will be secure. But then at the same time, we read, In the same book, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 to 15, it says this, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a typical Advent reading. I don't think anyone reads Isaiah 8 around the Christmas tree. And yet, Isaiah 8 is all about Christmas. It's about why Jesus came. Jesus came to confront, to create conflict between us, to divide us into two camps. 
all of humanity falls into one of two categories depending on how we respond to Jesus. We're either sheep or goats. We're either wheat or chaff. He's either going to lift you up or trip you up. Jesus will be that precious cornerstone for you or he will be that stone of offense, that rock of stumbling. Jesus has that kind of polarizing effect on people. As the Puritans used to say, the same sun melts the wax and hardens the clay. The same sun melts the wax and hardens the clay. And of course, the question that we're all left with is, which am I? Which am I? Am I the wax that humbly melts before the Christ? Or am I the clay who gets hardened by the Christ? If you've never read John Stott's book, Basic Christianity, I highly recommend it. It's a great read. In it, he demonstrates from the gospel accounts how no one came away from an encounter with Jesus with just some kind of ho-hum, no attitude, uh, no opinion, neutral stance. No, people either walked away from Jesus angry or they tried to follow him. Those were the two responses. No one who encountered the real Jesus could remain neutral without an opinion. I mean, imagine just someone coming up to you, coming up to you after service and saying, I own you. You belong to me. There's no way you can be neutral to that. You could either dismiss the guy as a lunatic or you can start following him. So if you still consider yourself to be neutral towards Jesus or if you have a friend who considers himself or herself to have really no opinion about Jesus, then it probably means that you or your friend has yet to encounter the real Jesus because the real Jesus is polarizing. If Jesus simply came just to be a savior who's going to rescue you from an eternal hell, and all you need to do is just to repeat a few words after me, or just to say this prayer, well, yeah, no one's going to be offended by that. No one's going to reject Jesus if he is just presented to you as a free ticket to heaven, or as free fire insurance from the fires of hell. Who turns away from from free fire insurance? But if Jesus came to be our Savior, and Lord, who not just makes a way to heaven, but makes a demand that we right now take up our cross and follow him. If he claims to own you, if he says you belong to me, well, then you can see why people are going to stumble over that. Friends, if the Jesus that you have heard about is not a Jesus that anyone would really stumble over, if, he, if what the Jesus that you understand right now is not a Jesus that is polarizing, that confronts people, then you probably have yet to meet the real Jesus. If right now you're thinking, well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with you. I think I am one of those people in the middle. I, I, I'm, I'm just neutral I don't, I don't, I, towards Jesus. I, I, just, I don't really have a strong opinion either way. I, I hear what you're saying. But what I'm saying is that if you don't have a strong opinion towards Jesus one way or the other, then it leads me to conclude that you haven't really read or heard 
what Jesus actually claims about himself and what he demands from you. He claims to truly be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He claims authority over you. He claims to own you. So he demands your allegiance, your trust, your obedience, your utter devotion to him. You can't just ignore someone making such demands over your life. You've got to either dismiss him as a lunatic or you begin to follow. It's your choice, but you've just got to make one. There is no neutrality here. That leads to our fourth answer to our question. Why did Jesus come into the world? He came to confront by creating conflict, not just between us, but within us. This is our fourth point. Each of us has to answer for ourselves. How will I respond to Jesus? Jesus forces us all to examine our own hearts, which can be a very unpleasant experience. It can cut deep. Examining your heart can hurt. So listen to what Simeon says to Mary in verse 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What Simeon is telling Mary is that this little cute baby of yours is going to cause you pain. He's going to bring you sorrow. He's going to create conflict in you because he is going to create conflict between people. He's going to create division between the people of your own hometown in Nazareth. That happens later in Luke chapter 4. And closer to home, the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus' own brothers, his half-brothers, they refused to believe that he was the Christ at first. And then Mary herself, she would hear Jesus tell other people that my mother and my brothers are my disciples, those who do the word of God. She hears him saying that. And then, and then she hears him say that if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you have to, quote unquote, hate your mother and your father. And I'm sure hearing that hurt her. And so in addition to being there in the end to see her son die on a cross, I think this is what Simeon was referring to, to the pain and sorrow Mary will feel as her son begins to form his own family of disciples and begins to draw distinctions from his family of origin, prioritizing the spiritual family of God. But that's what Mary and the rest of us have to come to grips with. Jesus came to bring a sword. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. This is, again, not a typical Christmas reading. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Look, friends, I, I know that's hard to hear, but that's the conflict that Jesus raises within each of us. Now, please don't misinterpret 
this. Don't take it out of context and misinterpret Jesus. He's not actually encouraging hatred and hostility towards family members, but he is clarifying his lordship. He is clarifying the kind of allegiance that he expects from his followers. For Jesus to be your Lord means that all other allegiances, including family allegiances, have to take a back seat. Jesus came to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, your highest allegiance. I think anyone who has taken Jesus seriously at his word, Anyone has, has taken seriously his claim over our lives will tell you that it really does reveal what's in your heart. When you take the Bible seriously, God uses it like a sword. And it cuts deep. And it cuts and exposes the idols of your heart. You'll find out what you're really trusting in. You'll find out what truly has your allegiance, whether it's God or something or someone else. And it's definitely going to hurt when God does that. Having a sword pierce your soul always will. But friends, just know that God only does it to save you. He wields the sword, not like an executioner, but like a surgeon. What he's going to do in your heart, yes, it's going to hurt. He's going to cut and he's going to expose some cherished idols. But like any good surgeon, he is doing it for your good. It is all intended to bring about healing. So if you say, I don't want a a sword in my soul, then just imagine if Jesus said the same thing. What if Jesus said, I don't want a sword in my soul. I don't want to suffer for these people. Where would it leave us? Thank God that we have a loving Savior, a merciful Messiah who suffered in our place, who bore the cross for us, who took the executioner's sword so that we wouldn't have to, so that the sword that goes into our hearts could be more like the surgeon's scalpel. That's what Jesus did for us. And so this Christmas, I pray that all of us will come face to face with the real Jesus and experience both the confrontation and the consolation of the gospel. Father, thank you for this passage. It might be a passage we're familiar with, but just haven't considered deeply. Or maybe it's a brand new passage we never even knew is in the Bible. And maybe we're now realizing that the Jesus that we thought we knew is not the real Jesus of the scriptures. And so I pray now that you would open up our hearts that we might see with eyes of faith the real Messiah, the true Christ, and that you would grant us faith to believe and to trust in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and sing. As Jason has just talked about.